Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. I'm Coach Andrew Poritz from Ingenuity Coaching. I help people to discover and fulfill their passions and greatness. My mission, to inspire and challenge you to dream big dreams. And with my coaching, help you to manifest those dreams into reality. You can visit my website at www.myfuturecoach.com and follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. If you're listening live and you have a question tonight, the phone number here is 646-929-2893. You can listen to the show on the phone, and if you press the number one, I'll know you have a question. We also have a live chat room right on the show page where you can feel free to join in. My special guest tonight is entertainer and author Jerry Castaldo. Jerry is not just an entertainer, but he's also the author of Brooklyn, New York, A Grim Retrospective. It's his memoir about growing up on the streets of Brooklyn, New York, his agonizing descent into the darkness of the city's underbelly, and his desperate struggle back to normalcy. You can find out more about Jerry at jerrycastaldo.com, and I have on the show page a link to his book on Amazon. Jerry, are you with me? I'm here, Andrew. Hello. Hello. I am uh, very excited to have you on my show tonight. Um, First of all, I read every page of your book. And the book was so engrossing, and it's very rare that I read a book. I get a lot of books from authors who are going to be on my show, mm-hmm. and often I don't even make it through through the whole book, or I get through a big chunk of the book, or it's a job, you know, to get through the book because I have to do it. I couldn't put the book down. Thank you so much. That's quite a compliment, and uh, you know, hearing it repeatedly, I never get tired of hearing that. <laughs> so thank you so much. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, I waited until I read the book to play on your on your website. You have like an eleven minute, basically a demo reel of everything you do. And uh, for anybody listening, this this is a fellow who is the consummate entertainer of the old school kind, like the hardest working man in show business type, like Sammy Davis. He sings, he dances, plays guitar. He's he's an MC. He's funny. Um, so one thing about you, Jerry, is that when I'm reading the book. In my mind, I had a voice for you. And when I listen to you, and I'm hearing you now, you have the exact same voice that I heard in the book. Well, that's good to hear, because I once did a radio show where um, they logged on to my website, and the female host, I think it was the Dennis and Judy show on 101.5 over mm-hmm. in New Jersey, and they were quite popular. Um, I don't think they're together anymore, but uh, she said, wait a minute, Dennis, wait a minute. This photo is of a 30-year-old man, and this voice is of a 60-year-old man. You know, <laughs> And I said, well, I get that a lot. My voice has always been kind of deep, and sometimes it doesn't fit. But I guess in, in your, your perception of whatever you saw, it matches. So that's good to hear. Well, but the voice you. matches your, 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 your persona when I, when oh, I oh, read the, your, All right, so you're going, you're delving in deeper. I'm going, yeah. just a... Uh, Perspective. I did it like from looking at your pictures, which of course I've seen your pictures. <laughs> you're on my Facebook. I've seen your pictures, and like from the picture, I would have actually thought of a different voice. But after reading the book, I heard the actual voice you're speaking to me in now, and it totally, you know, totally made sense. Well, well, I'll tell you also what I get a lot. You know, people will see me perform. I perform about 300 shows a year around the New York metropolitan and tri-state area. And believe it or not, some people sort of roll their eyes and they go, hmm, th- does he really do that many shows? Mm-hmm. Because I've never heard of him, you know. You know, I have good reviews from the New York Times and New York Post that I picked up doing the cabaret circuit in Manhattan. But there really is not any money in that circuit unless you're a name, you know. So if you're Maureen McGovern and you go into a big club in Manhattan, you know, you'll bring people in. But, you know, for somebody who's unknown, mm-hmm. whether you have good re- reviews or not, only your followers, family, and friends are going to be in there. So what I did many years ago um, is I found that there's a senior circuit, of course, retirement communities, senior centers, assisted living facilities. And, you know, I'm not above going out and doing those shows. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people will sniff at it and go, who? You know, I don't do those kind of shows. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm making a living, I'm performing every single day just about, and I'm able to do all those things that you just described me as, you know, do comedy, play guitar, dance, sing. So even though uh, sometimes I'll do a big show, like I I opened for uh, Lou Christie, uh, that had that hit Lightning Strikes back in the 60s, Jay Black and the Americans, I opened for them last year, Maureen McGovern, 
um, what's that other one? Jerry Lewis's son, Gary Lewis and Gary the Playboys. Lewis, sure. So, you know, those are big shows in the theaters. I went on the road. But, you know, the, the reality is I'll sing anywhere. I mean, so I used to sing on the sidewalk, as I write about in my book. Right. When I was a teenager, I you know had a couple of amplifiers, and I'd go out there, and, you know, that was decent money at the time. But maybe I'm jumping around too much for your audience. No, it's, it's fine. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I could, you know, I could easily do a 10-hour show with you. I'm just telling you yeah. right, right now. <laughs> Well, thank you so much. I mean, you know, just to give your listeners, uh, first of all, let me compliment you and say that from what I've read about you, I was particularly excited about this show because um, for once you just proved what I what I thought about you is you, you read the book. A lot of people will want me on the show because I have almost 400 five-star reviews on Amazon for the book, Brooklyn, New York, A Grim Retrospective. But then... They'll, you know, they'll skim the book. They'll just take a look. And I know they skimmed the book because mm -hmm. once we start talk, talking about it, they've only picked out the major points, the horrific points, or the things that they think the audience might find interesting. I thank you so much. And, uh, you know, the book, it's a memoir. And, again, a lot of people say, oh, another memoir. And, oh, it's from somebody who's not even really famous. I've never heard of Jerry Costello. So they may pass on it. And the ones that decide to delve in and read, they realize that, you know, it's interesting only, I guess, because it's more of a, a book of inspiration and anybody can relate. You don't have to be a drug addict. You don't have to be an right. alcoholic. You don't have to be a violent criminal. You don't have to be somebody who dropped out in the ninth grade like I did, mm -hmm. and, you know, to, to to see and feel that it's just a book about being human and how you can get lost and how there's always a way to come back. And that seems to be what you do for a living. I mean, it, it looks like you're basically coaching people on how to transition, especially in this economy. If you lose your job, for instance, and you always wanted to start, let's say, a cleaning service, mm -hmm. it sounds like you'd be the guy to inspire that person to have the confidence, point them in the right direction to get the information they need to be an entrepreneur. So that's exactly that what, what I you do. do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that's that's you know that gives me a warm fuzzy feeling because that's just a great thing to do. You sound like a together guy, a bright guy. From what I remember, you're from Bayside, Queens. That is correct. So we're both New Yorkers too. Yeah. And I, and I remember reading also that you had a Phi Delta or something like because I went to ni ninth grade, I know nothing about these. Uh, it's all Greek Latin. to you. That's what you're trying to say. Is the it Greek? Greek, the Greek or is alphabet it is all Greek to you. Is you that you're Greek? talking about yeah. my fraternity. Yeah. My fraternity. You read my. You said that about my fraternity. I was in Phi Sigma Delta. And where was that? And what that was school? in uh, in Maryland. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I actually was I was a bright kid. I mean, let, let, for your listeners, let me just take them back for a minute. Sure. Uh, Brooklyn, New York, Park Slope area. Um, as a 12-year-old, we move over to Bensonhurst. Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, as you know, coming from Bayside, Queens, is a is a what was more of a heavily mob influenced yes. uh, neighborhood. So, I'm growing up about, around all these other kids who had an uncle or a father or a cousin that were legitimate guys in, you know, Colombo crime family, Gambino yes. crime family. So as kids, they're influenced by the elders, and they want to, you know, be the same, act the same. So, you know, and me, I'm just like a nice kid from Brooklyn. You know, my family was, you know, I want to be a good kid. I'm, I'm a little leaguer. I'm an altar boy. I'm uh, good in school. I was pretty bright. But these kids, you know, are playing gangster with me, and they're beating on me, you know, punching me in the face, and I'm like, I'll hold their arms and say, ah, oh, you don't want to fight. And to the point where, you know, I just got tired of getting hit, so I, I became like them, more like them. And and at 13 and 14 and 15, even though I had made Brooklyn Tech, I took that special test to get into Brooklyn mm -hmm. Tech, we were on welfare and couldn't... I, I wanted to go to Severian or Bishop Ford, and those Catholic parochial high schools were money. So we didn't have the money, so I said, let me go to Brooklyn Tech, I'll play baseball. I was a good pitcher. I make the school, I get on the baseball team, and within six months, I'm out of the school because now, you know, I'm being introduced to first light drugs like, you know, pot, liquor, then moving on to pills before you know it. It's, you know, it's acid, it, you know, uh, then and then the barbiturates, which were very, very popular in the 70s. I don't find sure. them as popular now, but two and all, second all, yellow jack. Then you had the uppers, the methamphetamine. Now, when you're 14 or 15 and you start doing that, 
and you're hanging around with these kids and you're dropping out of school, your life just starts to disintegrate. And uh, as I say in the book, it was it was a scary place to live. I was afraid, and I had to become like like one of these guys that were crazy. So it was mm-hmm. like Jerry Castaldo is crazy. Don't don't fight with him. Don't bother him. He's one of us. So that's how I kind of got in. But but at the same time, it wasn't really me. But right. but when I talk about acting, like some people say, oh, have you ever taken any acting classes? I've seen your acting reel. You're so good. No, I never took an acting class because I was acting for my life as a teenager. Mm. I mean, talk about acting on the job training. And, and I was convincing. And I was doing, I mean, then I started with the crime. You, I, yeah, you want to see how tough I am? I'm going to do this. And and I had to leave out. In the book, I could not, dis- I don't know if you remember this part of the book, but I had said that um, I'm ashamed to say that some of the most serious and violent crimes that I ever committed were all before I ever turned 16 years yes, old. Yes, I remember. And I know that like you don't really go into a lot of detail about the crimes. You're sort of leaving it to the imagination. Well, well, well I want to. I don't want to frustrate the reader by saying, "Oh, yeah, I did something," but I'm not going to tell you because that would just be, you know, make me right. an ass. And they, um, <laughs> so, so you know, yeah, I, I robbed a lot of cars. We did a lot of burglaries. We had a lot of gang fights. You know, uh, people got hurt. People died. But when I said uh, that statement, I also added. Uh, the types of crimes that could put you away for more than just a couple of years. Right. And somebody like you could read between the lines yes. and say that, wait a minute, what would put you away for more than two or three years? It can't be a burglary. It's got to be mm-hmm. something like an armed robbery right. or, or on that level. So, you know, if you, you can pick it up. Not well, everybody. The good news for you, Jerry, is that unless you committed murder, the statute of limitations is long over the, long gone. So there's nothing you could say that can get you into trouble well, in well, a legal state of let, let me point out that you know um, when I say people died, in my heart, you know, and and the way I am, I never wanted to hurt anybody, sure. and I never really hurt anybody on purpose. You know, there's one scene in there. I won't give it away because if someone wants to buy this book, I think they'll enjoy reading about it. So I won't give it away. But you'll remember that there was somebody accidentally, you know, he went under the front t- tire of that car oh, yeah. during the gang fight with the mm-hmm. hammers when I was beaten to a pulp. And uh, you know that was that was just an accident. That things like that happen. I don't even know what happened, but uh, that's basically what I'm trying to do is um, explain to you and to your listeners that I was somebody that got caught up in something, and that I, I immediately was trying to get out of it. So 17 years old, 18 years old, 19 years old, I'm trying to get away from these guys. Stop taking drugs. Go back to being an athlete. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just couldn't. So um, I decided maybe joining the army would do it. And I and I you know and then as you remember from the book there were people looking for me and I just basically told the recruiter hey how far away can you send me Germany or Korea boom send me to Germany go to Germany you don't just stop being an addict or right. alcoholic <laughs> so now I'm in a di- different and they said that too you know at, at the end when I started to get better that geographic changes don't work and they don't because now I'm mm-hmm. in in Europe raising hell. Uh, you know, being put in the psychiatric wards, you know, in Landstuhl, Germany, causing trouble in Paris, you know. But you also off. did a lot of um, kind of work to get yourself really clean for a while. You were really working hard. You were being fit. You were taking really, you know, doing all the right things. <laughs> well, that's what's ironic, right. I was eating right. I was exercising because, mm-hmm. as you remember, there were spurts of two months, three months, four months. I was always trying but, you know, this disease, they call it, of alcoholism yeah. and drug, you don't just stop. So mm-hmm. without, but, but on the other hand, I didn't want help. Like people say, oh, you need this or you need AA. And I'm like, I don't need anything. I'm disciplined and I'll do it. And, uh, you know, as you just described, I, I would try, I would fail, I would try. I guess where the inspiration part comes in, that would be it, that people would say, wow, this guy is like, he just didn't give up. And one of the reviews on Amazon, I think, two days ago said dogged determination. It yeah. was five stars, and it's like a thousand-word review. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I got to tell you, I'm a softy. I read those reviews on Amazon, and sometimes I start getting, like, teared up because I'm reading about other people reading about me and then telling me what a great story. And I'm like, uh, you know, I, I mean, to, to tell you, I'd like to share with you that people say, why did you write the book? And I only wrote the book not because, like, I have a big ego and I want to say, hey, everybody, look, I wrote a book because, you know, I had a hard life and now I'm straightened out and I'm an entertainer. That's not it. 
the reason, the real reason I wrote that book was that many people said at the time, you know, as a teenager in my 20s, uh, Jerry Castaldo, he's a low life, he's a mm. drug addict, he's a piece of, you know, and uh, I felt like they didn't know me and that wasn't me. And it was like I, I wanted to cry out loud and say, no, you don't understand, that wasn't me. So the book is one big explanation to everybody because of the advent of the internet and, and let's say Facebook, sure. all of a sudden I see all these people from the neighborhood that I thought I'd never see again and I mm. hadn't seen in 20 years. They're on Facebook. So I said, you know, if I get a book out, maybe at least it would make me feel better that they all know what happened, the people that unfriended me in real life. You sure. So oh, that's, that's great. Unfriended in real life. That's a great uh, That's a that's a great one. You got to write that down. Right. Can Absolutely. Um you know, there's something that it w- w- was really, I would think, first of all, when did you write this book? How long ago? Well, in 2007, mm-hmm. I sat down and, you know, when you think of writing a book, it's such a daunting sounding task yes. that I didn't even, I, I just said to myself, you know what, I should just write, you know, a story about, um, you know, I think it was Stab Me Jerry Harder is the name of the chapter in my book. And yes. I think that, you know, everybody found it so funny. Like I would tell it. You know, sometimes on stage, and, and I would explain, hey, my friend wanted to get stabbed in the leg, but, and I'd act it out. And people would say, man, you got to write a book. So I said, let me just write that story down, and maybe I can do a one-man show off-Broadway or something. And I and I wrote the one story, sent it to a few people, and they were like, man, oh, man, that was so great. So then it was the same thing. I wrote another story, and by 2008, I had about six or seven stories written but again, writing a book, who knows about writing a book? I didn't have a publisher. Nobody was really lighting mm-hmm. fire under me. But then I guess Facebook really started picking up steam in 2008. And then I finally got on in 2009, and I said, you know what? All these people from the old neighborhood there, there's like 50 to 60 to 70 people. I said, maybe I should actually put those stories together and write mm-hmm. another five or six and have a full book. So that's what I did. So in 2009, I started writing in earnest, like on a schedule. Every morning, mm-hmm. 6 a.m., the coffee, you know, four or five hours of writing. And um, then I said to myself, the book's not going to get anywhere unless I get some people that are, you know, a little more well-known involved. So this guy, right. Chip Defar, I don't know if you recognize his name, but he wrote for the New York Post for 20 years. And he would review like jazz acts, okay. and even like Tony Bennett. I used yeah. to read. Oh, Tony Bennett was at Radio City, and he'd review him. And me being a singer, I you know I said, oh, I should you know watch this guy's column and understand what, what he writes about because I was reviewed by Kurt Davis of the New York Post in the early. I remember 80s. him very well. Yes. Oh, you do remember Kurt Davis? Absolutely. Yeah, now now that guy, you know, even though I didn't make a lot of money and I wasn't the greatest singer in the early 80s because I come from a rock and roll background mm-hmm. playing in bands, he still, you know, sort of urged me to go on and, and he gave me a good review. So if I didn't get anything else out of the cabaret community, it was at least getting two good reviews, one from the Times, one from the Post. And I took that with me through the, you know, 90s. But again, I'm jumping around okay. a little bit. Um, so getting back to uh, Chip DeFab, he has eight books that are traditionally published, not self-published. He went to Princeton. His family owns like a big multi-million dollar company that has something to do with satellite communications. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a different type of background than me. I wrote him and I said, look, I've been a fan of your column for many years. You, he's written for some magazines too. I said, I would love if you could take a look at some of my stories and, and maybe refer me to an editor so he says he wrote me back and he says I'm very busy I wouldn't be able to he goes I've edited things myself but I'm very busy now I said can I just can I just send you one story so he was blowing me off until I actually sent him two stories and I said let me send them two and he did read them both and then he said you know this is good I'm going to take the job and then we worked out the details with the money and the workflow which was kind of tough because I didn't like the way we were doing it. Like I would write something, I'd, you know, I'd have it proofread by somebody who was working with me. We'd send it to him. He'd edit it, send it back, but wouldn't show me what he deleted or moved mm. around. So it was like I had to compare it on two computer monitors. And then when I mentioned to him, he's like, hey, hey, take it or leave it. You know, it's like, <laughs> hey. And, and I said, Jerry, don't upset this guy because the whole thrust of why I really wanted his help was I respected his talent. Yeah. 
And I knew that having his name on the front of my book, you know, to be able to say, you know, New York Post columnist and author, and, play, and he's a playwright. He, I mean, he has amazing stuff this guy puts out. He's just so talented. So is he, like I, like, I don't know who is responsible for this particular structure, but something I noticed you do throughout the book is you have these kind of, like, little teasers. Like, little did I know that seven years from now this would happen, and that, that happens a lot in the book. Well, well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Andrew. And let me address that really quickly. The um, first of all, people say this guy went to the ninth grade; he couldn't have written the book. I got to tell you right now that I did go to a, go to a parochial grammar school. I don't mm-hmm. cover this in the book because I wanted to stick to the interesting stuff. I didn't want to sure. go. I was born on January 14th <laughs> on a snowy day. Who yeah. cares? If I was a celebrity like Jerry Seinfeld, who I also palled around with, and as you know, I read it, wrote about yep. in the book, then people would find it interesting. But I just thought the book at about 16 years old, because whose life is interesting from 1 to 16? Where It's all basically the same, so I never mentioned it, but I'm telling you. I went to a parochial school as a kid. Mm-hmm. Then we, 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 my father left. We had no money, so they were going to take me out and put me in public school. But the nuns saw that me and my brother and I were good in, at, at you know studies, and they let us go the last two or three years free, so like the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. So I was already on tenth grade math in the eighth grade, mm-hmm. and I was a good reader. So being a good reader and having good reading comprehension skills mm-hmm. was enough. So when I dropped out in the ninth grade. I probably was, you know, as if I would have uh, graduated high school. So right. when I wrote that book, a lot of people think I didn't write the book. I mean, I wrote every word, and and Chip would basically, I guess the biggest thing he did would be to delete some stuff or and then twist around and, as he put it, untangle some mm-hmm. sentences. Right. And I also rejected some stuff. There's one sure. scene where I'm driving in a, in a stolen car that a mob guy owns, and he had his leisure suits blowing in the back seat there and in the, in the plastic from the... And I had this girl, and I'm telling her to move over. And the way that I wrote that um, chapter... I was trying to make the reader understand what was happening as if they were watching a movie. Right. And he changed the whole thing around. And when I got it back, I just didn't like it. So I went back to my way. I mm. tightened up. So in answer to your question, yes, I I wrote the book. Uh, he didn't do as much as some people think. And I'm not trying to you know take all the credit. I'm just right. telling you the truth the way it is. And uh, ultimately... Because of his name recognition and, of course, his talent, he definitely has no doubt he helped with this book. It, it, it was able to move on to uh, bigger, you know, reviewers. For instance, Michael Musto from the Village Voice and the Entertainment News. He read it and he was able to say some nice things about it. Cindy Adams from New York Post, who who knows Chip very well, I'm mm-hmm. sure she wrote, wrote it up in the New York Post, which was kind of funny. She said. Uh, um, you know, Jerry Costello writes of being bludgeoned with a hammer, dot, dot, dot. This will not be turned into a musical. I thought that was funny. <laughs> uh, you know, and maybe she would have ignored me if Chip wasn't involved. So I was, I was sort of proud of myself that I had the wherewithal right. and the foresight. And I'd like to address what you just said about um, the teasers. I wrote that myself because I said, you know, the one crazy guy that had uh, hit me on the head with a bottle, and I'm not giving it too much away to your readers. I'm trying to say it in a cloaked yeah, way. Let me tell you, nothing you say can give away too much because it's all in the telling. There's so, <laughs> okay. And there's so many stories. So trust me, okay. you're not going to ruin anything. Okay, and so I'm excited ahead. about saying this because I'm going to tell you about the one bad review I've got. The out of you know, but and, that, and it's related to what you just said. Okay. The um, the so-called teaser would be like, I'd say, hey, when I watch movies or when I read a book, I always like when you hear or see something that you go, oh, wait a minute, is something going to happen later to that mm-hmm. person or thing? So that that's sort of engaging. So, you know, I'm sitting there going, oh, Jerry, you're a genius. You're going to, you know, I was, all ex- I was impressed with myself. And I sit there and I write it. So I make these little teasers. And uh, out of all, I had about 131 five-star reviews on Amazon the first six months or something. And then this one guy who, I don't know, and i got to talk to you about the, the emotional response. I have to bad reviews. I'm the big baby with that, too. But th- this one guy comes on, and he basically he gives me a one-star review. And, and I don't, you know, and I start reading, and he starts saying that... Uh, you know, Jerry Castaldo, uh, you know, he writes like an eighth grade. And I'm saying, hmm, I wonder if he picked it up because I dropped out in the ninth grade and now he's going to be influenced by that and then put he writes like an eighth grade. Wow. And, and he said that he uses too many quotation marks and italics. And I thought to myself, 
Well, first of all, isn't that the job of the editor? Because a mm-hmm. lot of those italics, and, and not that I'm blaming Chip, but hey, I, I didn't type in italics. You know, they were put right. in there later. And I said, second of all, it's a, it's a book about in, and it's an inspirational book, and it's got a message. I mean, who's who's proofing it for italics? So then the guy goes, um, and his ridiculous foreshadowing. Now, yes. I didn't even know what the hell. That's actually the word I meant to say before. Yeah, yeah, well, that's why I didn't give it away till I, I used it like a punchline just now. Yeah. I didn't want to dilute it. You you said teasing, and I knew you were thinking in your mind. But he said ridiculous foreshadowing. So I sort of knew what that meant, but I went mm-hmm. and looked it up to make sure that it had the right meaning. Yes. And it was like, <clears throat> he's he's knocking down my, my big genius moment that I was mm. saying. And then other people, and then on the reviews, they all said... Like I've had um, people write to me and go, "Wow, I really like how you you tease the audience." They actually use the word you used. So I said, "All right, it's just that one guy that didn't like it," and and I and I and uh, there's an, an author called uh, named Jay Asher that wrote a book called Thirteen Reasons Why, and mm-hmm. it's about teenage suicide. And the guy's mm-hmm. really big time. I mean, he's he's doing way better than me. He's selling books. He has a movie deal with Selena Gomez. Is going to star in it, and he wrote a whole thing about why um, we should have a, a different um, response emotionally to bad reviews. And I have this thing posted near my desk because, you know, everybody has the right to their opinion. If they buy my book and they feel mm-hmm. that there's ridiculous foreshadowing, they can put that there, and I'm going to have to take it. It's too bad for me. You know, it's too bad. They don't like it. But once you start saying that. Jerry Castaldo writes like an eighth grader because he's probably brain damaged from all the drugs and alcohol. Mm. Then that's not, a, in my opinion, it's not a book review anymore. It's it's a personal attack. Right. It's not nice. It makes me feel bad. It makes my family feel bad. And and the one reviewer that had put that Amazon removed it because that was a separate review that right. said I was brain damaged. So I try to take the high road and I tweeted out on Twitter. I said, you know, this this goes out to the the critic of my book who called me brain damaged. I said, you know, you may have a point that there may be some physical, uh, you know, uh, psychological damage for sure, but, you know, I don't need to point it pointed out in a public mm. forum. It's hurtful. So, so you know, and again, uh, I, I have to look at the, the 357 or whatever reviews and say, all right, that's one or two or three people. So, Yeah, you remember, uh, you know, I know that you're a fan of Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. and Sinatra had, uh, you know, uh, not a not a very long education, but what he did do was he read. Uh, he was a vociferous reader of anything and everything. Maybe uh, there's he a had word. A, What's that word? Vociferous. Vociferous. He a lot. I like that word. <laughs> More than nice. you could. Yeah, he constantly reading and he read very highly. You know, technical things. And he had tremendous insomnia. By I the did way. not know that. Now, how do you, how did, where did you read that? I'm I'm a huge 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 Sinatra fan. All right, oh, so the Kitty Kelly book would not something. say that about him. Because I read that, and that's probably oh, not yeah, he, a book. Well, that... like he, he had a big problem with insomnia. He would try everything, to, so he'd wind up reading, and he'd read technical things, science and history. I didn't he know was, that. That's he completely yeah. educated himself along the way by doing that. So you remember that I basically read the whole encyclopedia there yes. with my brother, World Book. Uh, but you know, I don't. I didn't want to sound like dramatic and say, you know, we were on welfare, and I read the whole encyclopedia and I educated. But it's true. I remember that, you know, I would just sit there and just take the the you know the volume A and B and C into the toilet and just stay in there on the toilet and just read. Oh, oh the whole. Me, that's the called the men's library. The men's library. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was the same guy with this, also with the World Book. But I have to tell you something. There was this moment in the book where you're outside of Carnegie Hall, right? Mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra concert. Remember that? Yeah, of course I do. And it was it's it sort of. Um... But I have to tell you something. I was inside. Oh, that's a, what a weird thing. Yeah. That's all I so, can think of was I was in that inside. Now, could it have been the same night? Wasn't it? Was it a run of a few days, though, yeah. or a week? I, I, I'm pretty sure it was. I, so I'm we don't know if I, we were there the same day. It probably was. I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know what? I'm going to take a little, like, writer's uh, oh, 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 liberty, liberty right, here. Dramatic. It was yes, listeners, night. Andrew was inside. I was outside <laughs> drinking vodka and listening to, to Frank Sinatra on the little cassette player in the... <laughs> car of my piano player who was home sleeping and didn't know I stole her car and and then three hours later on the on the BQE going back to Brooklyn I, I, I crashed the car 
And it was mm. so weird because I remember looking down where the pedals are, and you could see the highway, the BQE, like the... They, somehow the bottom of the car got ripped open, and I'm glad my foot didn't go with it. But I could see the the, the highway, and and I jumped out of the car, I left it there, and I jumped off the BQE, and I start running, and then I saw another car, just like somebody was warming up their car while they were in their house. So I figured, you know, that that's a good enough car to get home with, and I just took that car. Then then the police called me. Then I wake, you know, and then I crashed that car, and mm. before you know it, I was at Coney Island Hospital, handcuffed to the bed. And with a with a, a new NYPD officer sitting there, he was reading a book and he was guarding me. And then you know the whole story about me trying to jump out the window there, soaping the uh, handcuffs off my wrist. So I, I'm I'm sort of saying this real quick because I, I kind of don't want to give it away, but yeah, I want yeah. your readers to know that they might say, "Wow, I got to read that book." <laughs> no, they got to read this book. <laughs> oh, Audience cool. of mine, you must read this book. Look into my eyes. Oh, actually, that reminds me of another thing. You said something. Um, I wrote I wrote a note about this, so I remember to ask you about it. Um, when you were went to when you went to Eastern Airlines, and by the way, that, what a what a, like a blast from the past! You applied for a job at Eastern Airlines, so that right away tells me when it couldn't be right. very recent. Um, and you did this thing to the recruiter there. Oh right! Look into my eyes. Well, well that, it, I, could, I, could could you teach me that? Well, you know, you being a life coach. <laughs> uh huh. You probably um, basically it, it's like when you, you're you're pumping somebody up and saying you know you got to have confidence and you go out there and you get what you want and you right. show people because that's what people want employers in my opinion and guesstimate is that like if somebody's coming to me and they go Jerry I want to work on your show because you're the greatest entertainer and I'll be the best that's who I want working for me mm-hmm. you know sure. so you know when um, to to give I should give every, your listeners. Um, a quick egg, uh, snapshot of the book so they understand in what context we're telling this Eastern sure. Airlines story. You know, I, I'm obviously alive and okay, so they know that the end of the book turns out to be a happy ending. So I'll just say that, you know, I struggled, I was crazy, I got better about 91, and, and now I'm performing steadily for the last 20 years. So at this time, when I was one of the uh, times I was trying to get better, trying to get a good job, and, and uh, they had this Eastern Airlines ad for flight attendants because they had a strike and they they need scabs, and I, I didn't care. And I said, May, maybe that'll be good. Another geographic change. I'll go to Florida and train for a month to be a flight attendant, and then, you know, I won't drink and I won't take drugs. So when I show up at the LaGuardia Airport. I swear to you, no lie, there must have been two to 3,000 people in this gigantic line snaking all around the airport. And I said, how the heck, how many flight attendants could they possibly need? Even if they needed 100, the chances were like so slim I'm going to get this job. Mm-hmm. So I, I decided that um, you know I would make a plea for it. And, and after waiting online, I don't know how many hours, uh, maybe five hours or six hours, I got to this uh, this black gentleman who looked very snazzily dressed and very authoritative, and uh, I just looked him in the eye. I put my hand on his um, like his forearm, you know, and I leaned in and I said, "I just want you to look." You know, I forgot the exact words, but it was basically like, "Look at me." I know there are so many people here. It's a hard job for you. I'm going to make your job easier by knowing you have at least one highly motivated great worker who you will never regret having hired and he just kind of like smiled a little and he was like all right all right all right take it easy you, you made it to the next pass and then they <laughs> they they hand you off like i guess they right. had three or four interviewers and you had to get through each thing so he said you know go over with this group he gave me some paperwork and then it was the next um interviewer and then i sort of did the same type of di- thing and then by the time I got to the, you know, hours had passed, and now it's like 9 or 10 o'clock at night, and they had whittled it down. And then at the last group, uh, there, there was that guy again from the first one, and uh, there's like four or five or six executives there. And then 
they they do a more expansive interview where they say, well, what, do you, what have you done with your experience? So I started saying, well, I was a personal trainer at New York Health and Racket, and I had a running club. And he and then he said, like, well, what did you used to do? And then I actually got down on the floor and started doing donkey kicks. Oh, I said, well, great. for instance, I said I didn't write this in the book because I didn't want to bore the reader. But no, I, was, I, I actually was, I love I'm loving this. I wish you had. <laughs> well, 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 I want my it's hands so visual. These. That's why I like I'm it. I'm doing this Suzanne Summers type donkey kick, uh-huh. and they're all looking at me. I say, and then you do this. And then, you know, and they're like, this guy's hired. So, um, you know, they hire me, and mm-hmm. and you know how it turned out because you read the book. Yes. I don't know if I want to, you know, give it away for the uh, reader. Well, it's but, okay. But but it, again, it. it was a terrible turnout. You know, yeah. I got the job. Oh, I, I should add this for the listeners. Um, not only did I get the job, but when we went down to Florida, we stayed in this beautiful on the beach hotel that was right next to the Fountain Blue. That that famous hotel that all of Sinatra and all the people in the 60s used to Jackie sing at. Jackie Gleason had a Jackie show Gleason, there. Jackie Gleason, right. It doesn't have the same cachet anymore, right. but in the 60s it did. So, um, you know, I'm I'm roommating with this uh, other male guy who's going to be a flight. And every morning the bus would come take us in, and we'd go to school all day, and you'd learn. And it's pretty interesting because you learn a lot about emergency procedures, how to get people out of a plane, what do you do in a fire. It's not about serving food. That was like the last one day. All of it was emergency, how to get out of each different type of plane. So uh, every day... I would get up in the morning, I'd run on the beach, then I'd swim, and I'd be ready in the shower, for the, and I'd out and by the bus by 7 a.m. Okay, go to school. Every night, people would go to the bar. And, you know, there's a lot of good-looking girls because it was like 90% female, 10% male, and I was one of the few males that wasn't gay. So, you know, it, I should have been down in the bar. And most guys mm-hmm. say, oh, you didn't go. To... No, I stayed in my room every night because I didn't want to drink. I was afraid I might drink, and I wanted to do this. So the whole month I stayed in my room and my roommate said to me, and this is stuff I left out of the book. My roommate said, you know, a lot of people are wondering how come, what's wrong with that roommate of yours? He's weird. He doesn't come out of the room. And I didn't want to explain it to him, you know. And then towards the end, I did go out once and I sang for everybody. and go, oh, he's a singer. So anyway, when we graduate, people from around the country, families from around the country actually came, flew to Miami to watch their kids because we were mostly, you know, in our 20s. To, and, uh, they all had a vote for model flight attendant. So this big ceremony, they announced my name. Jerry Castaldo is the model flight attendant. I'm like, what? <laughs> that, because they thought like I was this nerd probably that never, uh, you know, plus I probably looked like a Ken doll. You know, I was like, yeah. you know, dashing looking. I had the little short haircut. So I go up and I get the award. And, and let me fast forward to next month. I'm in a drunken stupor. And basically thrown out of the airline. So another bad ending. And not a horrific story like many of the other right. stories in there. But but a sad thing. Like here I am trying to get better, trying to turn my life around and failing. So Yeah, there's something I wanted to ask you about because we, when you described that ending of your airline – it sounded like the guy had kind of offered you a way back in, but he you did. didn't say he, what you're, happened. You're very, you did read this book. Thank yeah, you totally. so much. You're really on the ball. Yeah, I didn't want to, like, again, bore your listeners, but he, I was embarrassed. And, and that's how, oh, that's, okay. again, that's, that's why I wrote the book. It was more like shame, like, Jerry, you are a piece of nothing. How could you ruin this? And the, and the guy basically, you know, when I showed up at the airport with my uniform, they wouldn't let me fly because I was obviously too, too out of it. So he called me and he said, come in and we'll talk. So the, this was the original guy that had hired me, the first guy I hypnotized with my eye, eye routine. And uh, I was I never called him back because I just was ashamed. I was embarrassed and I just wanted to go. And then, you know, and then two days later, I was off to Club Med in Mexico uh, because I had been offered a job with Club, Club Med months before that. And uh, I didn't take it. And now that I was, out of the Eastern Airlines, and basically my apartment in Manhattan was being sublet because I couldn't pay the rent. So I was living with my mother in an apartment, build, apartment building in Brooklyn, but she was in fear of losing her apartment because I was fighting with all the neighbors in the hallway because, again, I was out of my mind. So I said, i got to get out of here. So now I, I call and I take them up, and within three or four days I'm on a plane to Houston to transfer to another plane to go to Club Med. And then you fast forward several months later, I'm being thrown out of... Mm-hmm. Mexico, you know, so wow. it was just one disappointment 
after another, and and that's basically why the, they want the to live pattern was very you know similar. Every time you would do something really kind of extraordinary, you do these kind of extraordinary things, working with uh, with uh, Mr. Stein, Andrew Stein, and and becoming his his guy, and you would get into all these things, and you were in the Friars Club, and everything you would do would be this extraordinary thing, and then you would have a period of greatness followed by a complete collapse. Right, right, and right, and that's why I kind of resent some some reviewers, even the ones that gave me good. Re- like there was somebody who gave me like a three star review on Amazon, which is still a good review, but they yeah. said that it was very um, it was very repetitive and the roller coaster became predictable. Now, first of all, it's my life story, so I can't. I'm not going to start embellishing and making right. stuff up to, so it could suit you. So it's not repetitive. That's what it was. It was I try, I try, I try. I fail, I fail, I fail. I try yeah. again, and they're all different stories. And I, I thought that I'm not. I don't consider myself a great writer. I don't think I'm the greatest writer. That, you know, no, but what you are is a great storyteller. Well, with thank, thank you. And and I don't even think that I'm not even going to say that I'm the greatest storyteller. I'll just say that these stories are incredible stories, and if they're told in a cohesive, clear way, mm-hmm. which is all I try to do. When I wrote it, I said, make believe I'm writing this for, you know, uh, I don't know, my grandmother, so she can understand it. I'm right. going to spell it out, and that's all I did. I never claimed to be a great writer or even a great storyteller. It's just that I knew because of the, the mishmash of circumstances and things that happened because I was both motivated and positive and also, uh, you know, addicted to drugs and alcohol and sometimes suicidal. Those stories were incredible. So as long yeah. as I got them out in a clear way, people should find it interesting, I, I guess. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's all it was. So, so I have a couple of more uh kind of like story questions before I kind of get to this other part uh, just things that, are, that I'm curious about one is because you dropped this line in there and completely didn't tell what happened and I'm like okay I gotta know because I'm I'm so, I'm so curious about it. you took you oh, dropped well, now wait a minute hold on what? you asked me you know pre-interview is there anything that I won't talk about it or don't okay. want to talk about it. And I gave you the green light. I said yes, so I may be sorry now, but go ahead. Okay. No, I don't think you'll be sorry. I think it's. You, I think you're probably just like, ah, don't, like, they don't want to know. I think it's based on what well, you're Well, I was so trying far. to do that a lot is like cut the fat because I'm bored when I read a book. I yeah. want to get to the to the good stuff. And well, like, do we have know, to, maybe have to have a, like a special, uh, special edition, a special you know, like, <laughs> you know, Steven Spielberg uh, well, edit Andrew, version. If I would have known the response would have been like this, I only used 20 to 30 percent of my notes i mean i had all these notes okay. spread out and i said here's the chapter structure let me see what i want to say that's interesting now i was insecure about whether people would like the book or not so now that everybody's responding so well two years later i probably could have had it another 100 to 150 pages long yeah, you could have like uh stuff on like extras on your website like you know right you but i didn't me, know it at the time special but... edition nobody else got all right now i'm nervous all right shoot what do you <laughs> no i'm just uh, like you you dropped acid in the army Uh, and and that's it. You just said, oh, and I, I, you know, I and I dropped it there. But you just like so matter of factly, like you know, like smoked a cigarette and then went to the store. So like I dropped an acid. But what happened? <laughs> oh, oh, I see. Um, like well, actually, what, what? What was that experience? I'm so. That's just like I, 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 think I stopped I, there. I, and I, going, where did you go? I, I I don't want to point out that you may have mixed up the two stories, but I, I think. I'm thinking back, and I think it was actually – I think you might be thinking about the acid I took when I was on the set of that movie in Chinatown when I met Matt mm. Dillon, and I was dressed as I'm a I'm almost cop. positive that it was something like when you were – just before you went – well, I know. Before you went to the – before you went to the Army, you got okay, – I know you had pot on the plane. Right. And there was like a ca- very casual line in there about dropping, and now I'm going to have to go find it. You I'll, may I'll be right, but but I have a pretty good memory, and, and I don't expect you. I mean, how could you remember every line in the book? I, I, I'm pretty sure that, I mean, I was doing acid whenever I can get it, but acid isn't around like it was in the 60s and 70s. Right. That's a drug you probably can't even find today. No, no, so, it's, it's still around. Oh, it is. Right? I didn't know. How do you know? <laughs> I have sources. I, 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 yeah, I, 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 I have had one in, one trip in my life, and by the way, it was a, I, I'm 
it was a great day. It was one of the greatest days of my entire life. Oh, but really? I'm very fortunate that I don't have an addictive personality. Just for me, when they say a drug trip, it's literally like, oh, that was fun. Maybe I'll do it again in a couple well, of years. Well, do you know what kind of acid it was? Because we had Mr. The kind Natural you put under your Potter. Tongue. What's that? The kind you put under your tongue. Right, but we had we had names. We had Mr. Natural, which was a little oh, tab no. that had a picture of a guy that looked with a cane, and then we had Blotter, and then we had Window Pane, and then we had Microdot, which was a blue pill. Uh, it you, might have been that, the Microdot. I think that, that was very familiar. popular in the New York area in the 70s. But, I, you know, you may be right, but I, I'm sort of like, whenever acid was available, I would take it. But I remember the... Um, when I was shooting this horror movie called Chud, Cannibalistic Humanoid Underground Dwellers, where I was supposed to play a cop and uh, drive a cop car, Matt Dillon came on. I had taken the acid uh, over on, we were shooting on Canal Street in Chinatown in New York, and, you know, they had those big movie lights and stuff, and we were, it was an overnight shoot, so like two in the morning, I'm on this acid dressed as a cop, and, you know, there's a lot of waiting around on the set, so you're not always acting. You're just standing there waiting for them to fix the lights. And I'm looking at these lights, so I figured I want to smoke a joint. So I take a walk around the corner off set, and there are people sitting on the stoop, like in the middle of the night, you know, whatever. And I said, you got a light. So I lean over with the joint, and because I had the police uniform on, they all found it funny. They're like, holy shit, look at the cops smoking a joint. Like, I look like a real cop. So that that was kind of what I remember about dropping the acid. I know that when I got over to Germany, they had this black hash that mm. was like we would die for it in Brooklyn. We never had anything like it. It was like a tar, like yeah. sticky tar, and you put it in a pipe. And they did have acid over there, but if I did mention it, it was just a matter of fact, like you said. It's like yeah. you know, I took there was this, no story around it. Just like, there was oh, probably no did this, nothing. You know, I, was I don't so think anything. I would do this. You know, right, right. Nothing remarkable happened, so I probably right. just mentioned it in passing. But uh, that was another sad story. I mean, I thought I was going over there, and I was a good soldier. I mean, <clears> I, I was serious about being a soldier, and the the um, hostages and uh, Iranian hostage crisis was going on, and I was like, all right, I'm a soldier. I may have to go to Iran because I was over there, and I don't know. It's just it was a sad story to come home so early. I mean, I wasn't dishonorably right. discharged. I was generally discharged, so I still got my benefits because they thought I was a decent soldier. They knew I had a problem. So, for instance, yesterday I was at the Brooklyn VA Hospital, Getting a, getting a checkup because I still have my benefits because they didn't want to strip me of that because I wasn't doing anything terrible except for being a you know screwed up and mm-hmm. they knew I had a drug problem so that, it's kind of sad I always regret that too you know did you ever feel when you were over there like hey Elvis did this Elvis was here oh oh well yes because you know when I was sitting outside Carnegie Hall when you were inside with Frank yeah I'm like you know uh, oh Frank Sinatra and I'm listening and I'm a singer I'm going to be like him so you know you always put yourself like you daydream in states sure. so I'm like oh I'm in the army Elvis was in the army and then when he came out he became a big singer so you know like like now it's been 22 years that I've been clean uh, no drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. and I've been singing steadily thank you and um you know, I, I have not become famous in the sense of the word. Yeah, I'm famous on, on Facebook for my 5,000 <laughs> friends. And and to anybody there on my website, I must look like I'm a millionaire. I'm just a working stiff. I do a lot of shows. I work really hard. I work every holiday. It's not a glamorous life, but, you know, it, it, I'll tell you, though, it, it, it's satisfying to to run my own little business and, and mm-hmm. to do this. And with the advent of fa- Facebook and more high-speed Internet access where my videos could be viewed at the drop of a hat, I am getting better jobs. Like those jobs last year down in North Carolina at the Performing Arts Center, that was gotten from Facebook. The promoter saw my mm-hmm. video on Facebook. It's a, a real story. I mean, I was on Facebook uh, three weeks ago and somebody was giving away a baby grand piano, and I'm doing this music video for... Um, the song Falling Slowly from the Broadway show once, the eight-time Tony Award-winning show. I th- and I thought I might be right for the role. So I said, you know what, let me do this music video. Somebody's giving away a baby grand. I needed one. And I said, look, I'll take it. I got a free baby grand wow. three weeks ago delivered to my video studio. And it's in the video. You'll see it within That's a week. awesome. It's, it's beautiful. It's mahogany. You know, it's about 20 years old, but Is it Is that works. the one with uh, Marianne from Brooklyn? Uh, no, Marianne from Brooklyn, uh, for your listeners who might be familiar with the Howard Stern show, um, is uh, you know, a regular character that calls in every day, and she's always around. Um, she will be playing my girlfriend 
in a music video I'm, I'll probably start shooting next month of an original song I wrote called When Did You Stop Loving Me? But this last song that mm. I just did with the piano, it's just about finished the editing. I have violins and a mandolin and great great musicians. And I'm, I, I actually screened a rough cut yesterday in the green room of a show that we did upstate. My my two fathers came, my, my stepdad and my dad, wow. my mother, some people from California, a female singer who sang a little. And we all sat in this beautiful little theater. There's about 15 people. And we played the four-and-a-half-minute video video of falling slowly and it, you know it's a very emotional thing for my family and mm -hmm. you know watching it it all came together so you'll probably see it you know it'll be up on my uh, facebook page in a week or so but um you you mentioned marianne from brooklyn and i'm excited about that because she had interviewed me uh for her little video thing called marianne's minutes uh, back in june at uh, Spumoni Gardens in Brooklyn, which oh, okay. you're from Bed Bayside, so you know Spumoni Gardens, right? Oh, yeah. Well, of course, my parents were from Brighton Beach, so I spent a lot of time in Brooklyn, and in the 90s, I knew a lot of the guys. You might even know some of these guys I used to pal around with who were all from uh, Bensonhurst and Bay Ridge, a lot of these Italian guys. In fact, it got me, by the way, eventually. I got I got to sing in a movie. With, uh, all the, Everybody in the movie was Italian called Two Family House. I heard of that. Michael Rispoli was in Yeah, I movie? was Michael Rispoli's singing voice in that movie. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And how did you get that? I got that because I used to hang around with these guys. I do these shows. This guy named, uh, called himself Luigi Babe. I don't know if you heard, well, heard well, of this what guy, it, Luis what, I mean, you know I'm Italian, so what's your last name? What does that make you? I'm not Russian? Italian. But I, they were looking for an Italian singer. They said, you're an Italian singer. I said, hey, what do you, what do you mean? Like, hey. Uh, <laughs> you could pass for Italian, but Brian Beach is all Russian. So is yeah, your so my grandparents Russian? were Russian from what's now Lithuania. Right. But my, uh, my musicality is I'm like, you know, Sinatra is my teacher. So oh, that, really? That all right. Might give you some a, yeah, you probably sing more like Sinatra than me because I, I do his music, but I, ne I don't really like he's got that whole style of his own. So some yeah. people can do it. And that's I guess because I'm a rock guy, I never got that full style. Yeah, but, but we, we like I was a rock guy growing up. In fact, the guitar that you have two guitars in your video, I think you have the uh, the, the Les Paul and the SJ, right? Oh, wow. You remember that you saw the SJ. I, yeah, that, yeah, that one went into I the had shop, the by the way, for drugs. I had that SJ. Oh, you had the SG. That, I had was, the, that was my first real guitar. You know where that? You know that where I wanted that. Get your yayas out by the Rolling <laughs> Stones. Keith Richards was playing that, and I was uh, like twelve, and I said I want that guitar. And somehow my dad was able. My my dad and my mother have been very supportive. Like my dad left to, you know, he went with a stripper when I was a kid, and he was a gambler and a drinker and a bookie and. You know, but he he came back. You know that that right. woman just recently died, the, the stripper, mm. and uh, he, you know he he's with me, and he disappeared for ten years when I was doing the drugs and stuff because he just didn't know what to do. He's figured, ah, my son's a low life. I have nothing to do with him. But when he saw me start trying to get better and singing, you know, he liked that I was always singing, so he'd come to the shows and everything. But still, I didn't really get better till years after that. So now he's always with me. He's, he's 81 now. Mm. My mother's 75. My stepfather's only, what is he, 65. And they were all at the show upstate yesterday. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, they're, they're really behind me. But i got to tell you, though, Brighton Beach is funny because back in the 80s, I actually saw an ad in one of the New York newspapers saying they needed singers at one of those, you know, those big catering halls in Brighton Beach sure. where they would have people come in, they'd have a dinner, and then they'd watch all different singers all night. Mm -hmm. It was a popular thing. So uh, they told me, all right, learn the song Fresh by that, that black group. I forgot the name of them. Uh, not Cool in the Gang. This is another one. So I, I, I bust my butt trying to learn this song. And me and my dad go to Brighton Beach. And it looks like there's all gangsters hanging around, the Russian gangsters. And there's, there's like 10 other singers. So there's this band on stage. All the people are reading in the audience. And each singer goes on and does like two songs. It was actually Fresh and one other song. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. So then my turn comes. I go up there. I sing the two songs. And the guy goes, thank you very much for the audition. We'll call you. Well, he never called anybody because they just got 10 free singers to perform for those people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like they yeah. probably had they they sold tickets. They probably said we got a band. What a we racket. got female and male singers, and all night there'll be a a cavalcade of people. Uh, and and because I called the other girl, I said, did they ever call you? No, they just they you know. So we wasted uh, our time. That's a but story. what are you gonna do? You know everything's you gotta watch show business. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. 
So uh, it was, before we run out of time, which believe it or not, we will pretty soon. Wow. We're actually uh, coming towards the top of the hour. I really want to get to um, you as a guy who has gone through all this stuff you've gone through, and you finally found your way out. I want to hear uh, a little more about that and also what you would tell somebody, like if you met yourself today, like a guy like you today. So those are the two things I want to hear. Well, from. first of all, I would put my hand on that guy's forearm like I did for the Eastern Airlines mm. recruiter, and I'd, I'd look I'd look me in the eye, and I'd basically say, you cannot do this alone. I don't care how much discipline you think you have, how smart you think you are, um, you know, you cannot do it without external help. People organize that's that's what I would speak because I just did not believe it. People said, "Go into AA, go into this." No, no, I can do it. Uh, it there was a stigma attached. I felt like a failure if I had to go to AA, mm. and uh, and and that was it. And uh, fast forward to you know the, the the week that I got, I started to get better. I'm not somebody who preaches AA because a lot of people get turned off for it. Oh, sure. I don't need. But it was, in my case, it was AA because I had nowhere else to go. I, I, I walked into this meeting and I and I had such a bad attitude. I'm like, These, this is this is baloney. I don't want to be here. But let me sit here and see what this magical place is going to do for me. And I sat in the back with an attitude. You know, people smile at me. I'm saying, oh, look at this. There's a cult over here. Oh, yeah, they're laughing. They're hugging each other. They're having cookies. They're smoking cigarettes, having coffee. Just leave me alone. I listened to everybody. All right, that was touching, that story, whatever. And when the meeting ended, guy came over with a big smile. Hi, what's your name? And I'm, like, all guarded and stuff. But, but you know, I was nice to him. I mm -hmm, appreciate sure. it. I said, you know, yeah, you know, I guess it's my first time. And and the guy said, you know, well, really, why don't you come back tomorrow? And I, I was saying yes, but I wasn't going to come back. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I, I think of my mom. I was trying to show somebody, like, maybe I needed money. And, I and like, my mom wasn't rich, but I figured, you know, if I show her I went to AA, maybe I can con her out of $50 or something mm -hmm. to live for a few, few more days or whatever. <laughs> that's about how I would live. Sure. So, so when I was walking home, I, I really like I don't know. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about it, and then for some reason, I don't even remember why. The next day, I went back because it was called the 14th Street Workshop, and it was on 14th Street uh, between Second and Third Avenue, Manhattan, mm -hmm. and it had multiple rooms going on: Overeaters, Gamblers Anonymous, and the Drugs Anonymous, and it was going on all day and all night. So you can just walk in. So in the morning. I don't know what propelled me, but I went in again. And, you know, another guy that was like the guy from the night before was friendly. And then I was like, oh, well, I was kind of like desperate for friendship and warmth, too, because I was fighting with everybody. So I sort of felt like good. So then I went back the same day at night, and then that was it. I went every single day for the mm. next year, sometimes twice or three times a day. And then I, I got a job, like a little regular office job, and because I wasn't singing at the time, and they gave me health benefits after three months. So I started going to a therapist like once or twice a week. And then I said, wait, maybe this time. And that that was it. That was the first year out of twenty-two years. So, so how long would you say was the process for you to get to a place where I, like, I guess you would, you're always in recovery, correct? That's right. I can go out tonight after this phone call and say, ah, this is blown, man. Let me go get right. some. So the, the, the point uh, that you got to where you felt like, I'm gonna I, tell think you, Andrew, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm going to continue this. I'm going to tell you, Andrew, in my case, it was an anomaly. It was weird. It was almost immediate. And mm. only it was immediate because I was trying for so many years. I was trying since I was 16. Like, as soon as I started, I was trying to stop. 16, mm -hmm. 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, all the way till I'm 29, 30. Um, you know, I know we don't have much time, so I, I want to tell... Your your listeners. We have a that, minute and a half. Yeah, that there's a whole chapter in there about me and Jerry Seinfeld and and the, the problems we had and being taken out of his dressing room. I mm -hmm. was close with him, you know, laying on the subway tracks with a broken neck and 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 how nothing helped me except that those meetings. Mm -hmm. So when I got in there, I was galvanized within a week or two or three. I was smiling and people in those meetings were going, yeah, they'd raise their hand and go, yeah, some people come into <laughs> these rooms and they, they're on a pink pink. Uh, 
pink cloud. They're all happy, but wait till they're in here and they'll see it's hard. It never got hard for me. Wow. It got easier. Three months, six months, nine months. I was on a roll. I was never going back to that. That's great. And my last question, real quick. Since uh, since you wrote the book, now you have the Facebook presence, and I know and there are people that you said you know that I never heard from again. They never saw me again. Your girlfriend, you know, twenty years, twenty one years. Um, have any of these people now found you since you've written? Yes, book? yes. Good, good question. Somebody, the woman who wrote um, a book about Natalie Wood's murder, uh, you know, or potential murder. I shouldn't say murder, her death. Right. Uh, she had asked me if I had any of the mob guys come after, and I have gotten a few phone calls like, "Hey, I saw you change your name, but that that was me, right? You shouldn't be, you know, stuff right. like that." But nobody threatened me, but they didn't like it. Right. But Mary Lou. I meant Lou, more like your friends. Or your, well, I was going to say Mary Lou. A lot of women say, whatever happened to Mary Lou, the girl you were with all those years? And then she left you like that. She, I needed to talk to her to find out if it was okay to say that she was you know, raped at knife uh, point and, and to use her name. She okay. You got 10 and, seconds, Jerry. So I've got to thank you real we, quick. And we talk once a year. Thanks. Thanks, Jerry. And find everybody. You can find them on jerrycastaldo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Good night.